Good afternoon, good evening, good morning. This is Philip Terzian, literary editor of the Weekly Standard, with my weekly podcast about the books and arts section of the Weekly Standard. And this week we're looking at the June 2nd issue of the Weekly Standard. The lead piece this week is a piece by George Stauffer, dean of the uh, uh, School of the Arts, uh, Mason Gross School of the Arts at Rutgers, and a frequent contributor to our pages. And Dean Stauffer has written a review of a book by an Englishman called John Suchet, published by Atlantic Monthly Press. The title of the book is Beethoven, The Man Revealed. The point that our reviewer makes is that this is a book fundamentally for people who are interested in Beethoven, the man, not so much Beethoven, the composer. In fact, he goes to some length to describe the extent to which Beethoven's music is really not exactly ignored, but it's it's treated very briefly in the course of the book. Obviously, there are high points and low points, and various works are mentioned in connection with Beethoven's life and what happened when they debuted and that sort of thing. But basically, it's about Beethoven the man, who, of course, in addition to being, in the opinion of many, including myself, probably the greatest classical composer, was also, like many creative geniuses in history, a very, shall we say, interesting human being with a lot of endearing and a lot of horrifying and annoying and brilliant characteristics to him, uh, all of which make for interesting reading. And, of course, the the pathos of Beethoven's life, his his kind of self disgust at his appearance, his, of course, the tragic irony of the greatest composer of the age, uh, steadily losing his hearing at a comparatively early age, uh, actually composing many of his greatest works uh, in a state where he never could hear them except in his mind. And Suchet does all this very skillfully, although, as the reviewer points out, if you want to learn about Beethoven's music, this is not necessarily the book to go to, but if you want to learn about Beethoven as a, as an individual, as a human being, this is a book that you will find very rewarding to read. This is followed by a review by Gabriel Schoenfeld of another biography, this one of a very different person than Beethoven, that is Eddie Rickenbacker. Eddie Rickenbacker was a figure perhaps better known to earlier generations than to the present, but an important American and someone whose life makes for a great book. The book is entitled Enduring Courage, Ace Pilot Eddie Rickenbacker and the Dawn of the Age of Speed. Eddie Rickenbacker was one of those pioneering, engineering, mechanic, tinkerer types who in the at the turn of the century pretty much created the American automotive industry. And he was he was actually best known in the early 20th century as one of the early uh, racing drivers in America. But at the beginning of the First World War, he had by then adjusted his interest to aviation, which was, of course, in his infancy at the time, and he became a, uh, well, he was commissioned in the, what used to be known, I guess, as the Army Air Forces, anyway, the Air Corps and the Army, and went over to Germany in 1917 and became a great ace, which is to say he shot down uh, any number of German uh, planes and became uh, something of a, he had been a, a, a national hero as a racing car driver, but then became a war hero as well. And 
later in his life continued in the uh, in the aviation industry. He was a founder of Eastern Airlines and continued as a a consultant and elder statesman to the to aviation generally and the aviation industry in particular. But he was also one of those great American heroes whose exploits people never tire of reading about. It was an inspiration to millions of little boys, if not little girls, across America, and was a, a real household name up until relatively recently. I mean, people still know who Eddie Rickenbacker was, and if, if you read anything about the history of early aviation or American participation in World War II, and World War I, rather, and World War II, for that matter, uh, he's a name you know. But it's a it's a a new biography by John F. Ross, published by St. Martin's Press, and it tells the story of Eddie Rickenbacker in a very approachable and accessible style, and will, with luck, introduce him to a generation that doesn't know the name quite as readily as earlier ones would have. This is followed by a review of yet another biography, this one by the British author Philip Ziegler, which is entitled Olivier, and the review is by Henrik Baring, another occasional contributor to our pages, and it is a, uh, to my knowledge, the first full-length sole biography of Sir Lawrence Olivier, probably the greatest actor of his times, taking him from his early days on the English stage in the 1920s, to the very end of his career, which I think he died in the late 1980s. I should know when he died, but I don't offhand. Olivier himself wrote several books, memoirs. He even wrote a book in the late 80s, I recall, called On Acting, where he talked about the craft of acting. But his autobiographies, as, as showbiz autobiographies tend to be, is is a lot of interesting and amusing stories and vignettes and portraits, but it, there's as much that isn't there as there is there. And while there's no great dark secret in Olivier's life, you don't learn as much as you could by just reading Lawrence Olivier on the, on the subject. But obviously anyone who's ever seen Wuthering Heights or Henry V or Richard III or any of his great uh, later uh, films of the 1960s and 70s in particular. My personal favorite is The Entertainer, his adaptation of John Osborne's play, which was made in 1960. We'll know what an extraordinary performer Olivier was, and this book is particularly worth reading, partly because it avoids the kind of, shall we say, salacious interests that uh, lives of actors and other creative types tend to inspire in biographers. Philip Ziegler doesn't exclude any of that, but his primary interest is in Olivier's life as an actor. And as with many actors, his life offstage or offscreen wasn't, was nowhere near as exciting as the world he created on stage or on screen, but interesting nonetheless. And also a potted history of the English theater of the interwar and immediate post-war era. Uh, Olivier was also founding director of the National Theatre in London in the in the 1960s and continued on to the 1970s. So even, even after the high point of his time on stage, um, he, cre he still exerted a 
considerable influence on the British theater. And of course, British theater in turn has greatly influenced American theater. So I think anyone interested in acting, interested in the theater, interested in the West End or Broadway will enjoy reading uh, Henrik's piece about the Philip, new Philip Ziegler biography of Lord Olivier. This is followed by a review of a novel. The novel is called Strange Bodies by Marcel Theroux. Marcel Theroux is the son of Paul Theroux, and it is reviewed by Anne Marlowe, who has, among other things, Anne Marlowe writes about many things, from foreign policy to rock music to sex to Afghan strategy and counterinsurgency, but she also has an interest in what we might call, I don't want to say magical realism, but certainly science fiction and, and um, what we might call fantasy literature. And Strange Bodies is a, a curious novel that combines our current interest in the distinction, if there is any, between the mind and the body and what that can mean in, in fictional terms. And it's, it, it, it's a plot that involves human beings whose, whose minds and consciousnesses are exchanged among one another. The old science fiction notion of transplanting one brain from one skull to another is here realized in a rather more sophisticated form with all the attendant philosophical, well, and physical too, I should think, but philosophical complications imaginable. That makes for an interesting novel, even for those like me who aren't especially interested in in fiction of this sort, Anne Marlowe manages to make it sound interesting. And certainly, uh, since we're now coming into the uh, vacation and beach season, the kind of book uh, you might want to take with you uh, on your next trip. I also have in this issue a essay by Daniel Goodman about um, a, sh a show of Paul Gauguin, which is currently at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. I always run uh, essays about uh, museum exhibitions with the idea that I don't expect readers to drop what they're doing and get the next flight to Chicago or Venice or New York or Baltimore or wherever the exhibition may happen to be. Although if you happen to be in New York, uh, Daniel Goodman makes it clear you probably should go see this show at the MoMA. But what I like to do is use such occasions to get a nice essay about the, the artist involved. And that's what Daniel Goodman has done here in this piece. It's an appreciation not only of the show, which, which looks at Gauguin's art from a certain point of view and uses examples that, that buttress that viewpoint, which is often the case with museum shows of this kind, but he uses an exam as a as a, a springboard for a, a nice essay about Paul Gauguin, uh, what prompted him to paint, how he painted, why he painted, why he painted, what he did. Parisian bourgeois who longed to lead the sybaritic life in the South Seas and uh, who once he got there uh, realized it wasn't quite as it appeared to be, but nevertheless was food for his art. And even though he may have wanted to return to Paris and live out his life as the French bourgeois that he was, he had by then come to the realization that he was the legendary French artist who had 
escaped to the South Seas and chronicled the lives of the Pacific natives, and that um, that was really his destiny as an artist. But it's an interesting piece, and there's very interesting analysis of Gauguin's art as art, not just Gauguin's um, character and personality and impulses, but his paintings, the most important of which do seem to be in the exhibition. So if you're in New York, see the exhibition, but if you're not in New York or if you're otherwise unable to get there, read Daniel Goodman's piece. Our movie review this week by the redoubtable John Podhoretz is of Godzilla, which in a season where um, various blockbusters are about to descend upon us, he contemplates the latest iteration of the Godzilla franchise, which of course began in Japan in the early 1950s, I guess as a kind of anti-nuclear parable, Godzilla being the product of a of an atomic explosion and a, a kind of metamorphosis from that, which who then goes to terrorize various Japanese cities. We all know the the delightful, delightfully crude imagery, but obviously uh, the Godzilla franchise has been updated and modernized and has much higher production values. And this one in particular features Brian Canston. And John makes the point that this particular version of Godzilla, which is directed by Gareth Edwards, is in fact perhaps worth your while. And even if you don't have much taste for movies of this sort, because the first segment of the film, the first third or so, very much follows the age-old principle that if you want to um, if you want to bring in an audience, if you want to want to attract the attention of an audience and keep them attracted, that you rely on the good old fundamentals of plot and character and suspense. And this movie, although ultimately it does descend into the usual computer-generated fun and explosions and and uh, giants and uh, graphic wonders, it nevertheless is a, is a serious. Uh, story uh, told uh, in an interesting and sophisticated way. And so once again, I have to say, as one who generally avoids movies of this sort, I, I'm intrigued to see this version of Godzilla that John commends, partly out of curiosity about how John's opinion may conform to mine, but also how you can take a notion like the Godzilla films and Lord knows how many dozens of them have been made, and turn it into something that uh, moviegoers in the year 2014 might actually want to see and sit and watch for 90 minutes. So on that note, I close for this week. I thank you for listening. I hope you will uh, look at, at the Books and Arts section, the Weekly Standard, devour the rest of the magazine, as I'm sure you will, and wait patiently. I will be back in a week with... Uh, our next podcast of our next issue. Thank you very much.